You're going to love this. Just love it. Stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radios, KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Oregon Central Coast, on the Progressive Voices Channel, on the Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not. Radio Free Brooklyn, and of course, five days a week on Radio Sputnik. You can also download our podcast anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, where, by the way, get busy. We could use some good reviews over there. It helps everyone else find the show. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. I am your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, Troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me, if not you, I don't know. Stop on by iTunes, leave us a review, and let us know if I am as swell as I think I am. Uh, welcome to the show. We've got uh, we've got a lot a uh, lot to cover today. Before we get there, some breaking news as we go to air today. Baltimore State's Attorney Marilyn Mosby announces. The grand jury has now indicted all six officers in the death of Freddie Gray. She had announced uh, her intent to charge them uh, some weeks ago as Baltimore was uh, literally on fire uh, following the death in police custody of Freddie Gray, the African-American man whose uh, voice box was crushed. His spine was severed somehow uh, in police custody. So uh, charges will move forward. The arraignment is set for July 2nd. In that case of all six officers, uh, we'll get more details uh, as this uh, as the news unfolds here. Apparently, some of the charges have changed. Originally, there was to be uh, homicide charges related to homicide, manslaughter uh, and uh, and even murder in one case. I'm not sure what the charges are now, but that is breaking news coming out of Baltimore today. Also, we've got some very good news that uh, broke as we went off air yesterday out of Nebraska. We will uh, we will speak about that very good news. The uh, state legislature there, a Republican state legislature, has banned, has at least voted to ban the death penalty once and for all up there in Nebraska. That's great news. Um, they voted with a veto proof majority which is good news because the Republican governor of that state has vowed to uh, veto this uh, this this new uh, law from the uh, Republicans and the Democrats who, who joined together to vote against it and to do the right thing, in my opinion, and get the government, at least in the state of Nebraska, the hell out of the business of killing people, killing our own citizens. We will be speaking with Republican state senator, 
Al Davis. He was one of the uh, Republicans who joined with the Democrats to vote to end the death penalty on Wednesday. Uh, Looking forward to that conversation because it's a really interesting, what they call a unicameral body up there. They've got just one chamber, uh, only a Senate, no uh, House of Representatives up there, and and it's not divided by party, even though the uh, Democrats out, uh, the Republicans outnumber the Democrats by about two to one up there. They don't caucus by party. They caucus geographically, and that seems to have made a difference in this case. Uh, we'll ask the uh, state senator about that in a little bit. Uh, made a difference in this case, by the way, and other common sense legislation recently up there in Nebraska. So that's some uh, some good news. We'll we'll be talking about more in a bit. Some not so good news out of Alabama. In the case of former Democratic Governor Don Siegelman, who, in my opinion, after having uh, covered this case now for many, many years, uh, was railroaded, was railroaded by Karl Rove and the Bush administration and a very partisan prosecutor who was actually married to uh, the uh, uh, the chief of well, the, the, the campaign head of Governor Don Siegelman's uh, opponent. Bob Riley, governor who eventually became governor once they railroaded the very popular Democrat Don Siegelman out of there. We'll talk about that in a minute. Desi Doyen will be joining us with the Green News Report. More details on that horrible oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara, which uh, kind of freaked out a lot of people, given that uh, back in 1969, this very spot, almost at that same spot on the beach, was the uh, was the site of the nation's worst oil spill disaster back in 1969 that helped galvanize the environmental movement back then. Another oil spill on that very same uh, very same site. We will talk about that in the Green News Report, along with details on a new settlement in the 2010 BP oil spill in the Gulf. I think that's good news. We'll find out from Desi. Uh, also, a $5 trillion, $5 trillion a year is given to these companies, these oil companies, these coal companies. These are fossil fuel subsidies by governments around the world given to the, uh, the most profitable industry in the history of civilization, of human civilization. Yet, they get subsidies from governments to the tune of $5 trillion a year. To give you some perspective on that, that is $10 million a a minute. Nice work if you can get it. A eh? Exxon Mobil, a BP. Um, also, our Obama spoke this week to the uh, graduating Coast Guard cadets uh, about the national security concerns presented by climate change. And yes, as, as we've talked about on this program, uh, what's going on, the war in Syria, the rise of ISIS, all of that uh, is directly attributable to, uh, to climate change and to the horrible drought that happened in the, uh, in the Middle East that ended up leading to uh, the, the rebellion in Syria and uh, the formation of ISIS. But first, on this Don Siegelman case, this is uh, reported late on Wednesday. A federal appeals court has upheld the bribery conviction of and uh, and prison sentence of former Alabama Governor Don Siegelman. The 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled on Wednesday that Siegelman was not entitled to a new trial. The judge also upheld his 78-month sentence. 
The ruling is the latest blow to Siegelman, reports AP, who has been fighting to overturn his 2006 conviction in a government corruption case. A federal jury convicted Siegelman of appointing former Health South CEO Richard Scrushy to a state board in exchange for a campaign donation. Uh, Siegelman, a Democrat, had argued that a prosecutor with ties to the GOP politics remained involved in the case despite her Claims of recusal, federal judges said there was no evidence that she influenced the prosecution team, questionable as far as how much evidence they actually looked at at the 11th Circuit. Siegelman is still now projected to get out of prison by 2017. We've covered this case for a long time. We've covered the 113 bipartisan former states attorney, uh, state attorneys general who have stated that what Siegelman was convicted of had never been a crime until he was charged with it. He received no personal enrichment. Uh, this money that they're talking about that they're claiming was a bribe was uh, a half a million dollars that was given to a campaign for uh, uh, an education lottery for people who, could, who couldn't afford to go to college in Alabama. Um but uh, he never received, uh, Siegelman never received any of that money, and the quid pro quo in this case what he was given, what this uh, Scrooge guy was given in return was apparently the uh, right to sit on a hospital board that Governor Don Siegelman told me some years ago. Uh, I think it was in 2012. We had him on this program. Told me that uh, he didn't even want he did. The guy didn't even want to sit on the board. He had been appointed to this board by bipartisan governors before Don Siegelman. Here was a, a bit of my conversation with Don Siegelman from I think this was 2012 while he was out on appeal and before he was sent back to the uh, Oakdale uh, Federal Institution in uh, in Louisiana. Do you contend to this day that what you did, do you believe that what you did was not a crime, that this transaction oh. that took place was not no, a crime? It, it, I offered a CEO of a Fortune 500 company a, a place on a part-time, non-paying board on which he had served through three previous governors. I was the fourth governor to appoint this guy to the same board. Uh, there was no agreement. He didn't even want to serve on the board. He asked me, Governor, do I have to? And I said, <laughs> I, and you know, the, he was tired of being on the board. He had just resigned from the board. I recruited him to be on the board. This man served five years in prison for something he did not do. Very. That was Democratic Governor Don Siegelman, former Democratic Governor of Alabama, uh, protesting his innocence uh, to me back in 2012. Uh, well, he I believe he really was railroaded. And uh, that has been underscored in the years since. If you look at what the Supreme Court has decided that, uh, that campaign, even if even if you consider that uh, Scrooge gave him this money in exchange for something, what what. Uh, you know, the donations, the billions now that flow into candidates and to their super PACs, uh, as allowed by the Supreme Court following a, the Citizens United decision. Uh, it is just obscene, frankly, what happened. We'll we'll be talking more about this case, I hope, tomorrow. Uh, hopefully we'll be able to uh, be joined by Joseph Siegelman, Don Siegelman's son, uh, who is now an attorney working on his dad's case. I got a, uh, a quick response from Joseph today. He says that uh, they are very disappointed by the ruling and that it only renews our determination to rectify this injustice through other means. You can get more information on this case uh, at bradblog.com, of course, where I've been reporting on it for years, but also at free-don.org. 
We've talked about the judge in this case, the federal judge in this case, Mark Fuller, who was arrested last August for beating his wife. Mark Fuller was uh, a friend of Karl Rove's, uh, head of the Republican uh, GOP in Alabama before he was appointed by George W. Bush to be a uh, federal judge with a lifetime appointment. He is free. Don Siegelman is not. Uh, we've played that 911 call from uh, Mark Fuller's wife many times on this show. Well, we'll try to do it again tomorrow because it's creepy as hell in what sounds like his wife being smacked by Judge Mark Fuller. I will spare you that now, though, because we've got a lot to get to today. Um, but the, I, you know, I just I, I this case continues to be uh, continues to be troubling. In, in so many respects, Mark Fuller uh, at, at Don Siegelman's sentencing slapped shackles and handcuffs onto Siegelman and shuffled him off to his uh, six and a half year sentence at the time. Did not let him go free the way Bob McDonald, the governor of, uh, of uh, Virginia, the way he enjoyed after his sentencing to go free while the uh, appeals move forward. No, this guy was just sent off to federal jail. Mark Fuller should have recused himself from the case in the first place. Because he had political, long-standing political grudges against this once very, very popular Democratic governor in the state of Alabama, who held every statewide post. I believe he's the only guy who has held every statewide post: uh, governor, lieutenant governor, treasurer, secretary of state in Alabama. And uh, you know, back at the time that he was railroaded in the early 2000s, God forbid you should have a popular Democratic governor emerge from the South. Not after uh, Bill Clinton at the time was extremely popular and uh, George W. Bush's popularity was going down the toilet. Speaking of George W. Bush and his popularity down the toilet, uh, if we have a few minutes here, uh, Desi, uh, let's cue up this uh, these these Jeb Bush comments. Uh, we've been we've been talking now for a week, uh, almost two weeks now, about uh, Jeb Bush's ham-fisted answer. To uh, what he would do, uh, you know, knowing what we know now, would he have gone to war in Iraq? Would he have sent uh, more than 4,000 U.S. troops to die? Would he have killed hundreds of thousands of innocent Iraqis for apparently no good reason whatsoever? And the ham-fisted way in which he answered that question and then Marco Rubio did the same, you would think that these guys would know how to answer this question. But, of course, they don't because... Frankly, the media hasn't been talking about it. There has been no accountability by this president, by Barack Obama, against those uh, people who sent us to war based on lies, known lies, lies that were known to be lies at the time. No, it was not faulty intelligence. I'm sorry to keep repeating that over and over again on this show, but apparently word hasn't gotten out. For, uh, you know, just a, a brief idea of how to answer this question, if you are a politician running for higher office, much less the brother to Jeb Bush, I mean, the brother to George W. Bush, uh, Jeb running for president, here's how you answer that question. You practice that question, even if you have to fill it with nonsense and lies. You, you have a plan. You know how to answer this question if and when you are asked, as Jeb Bush was. Here's an example of that from Hillary Clinton, who, by the way, I think her answer is kind of nonsense, but she had practiced an answer. She knows how to answer the question. 
Here's what Hillary was asked uh, recently this week when she was asked, knowing what you know now or, or whatever the same question was. She doesn't even, by the way, she doesn't even bother to answer the question. She dodges it. But she, she knows how to answer it. Here you go. Here's that uh, response from Hillary Clinton. Given the situation in Iraq, do you think that we're better off without Saddam Hussein in power? Look, I know that there have been a lot of questions about Iraq uh, posed to candidates uh, over the last weeks. I've made it very clear that uh, I made a mistake, plain and simple. And I have uh, written about it in my book. I've talked about it in the past. And, you know, what we now see is a very different and very dangerous situation. The United States uh, is doing what it can, but ultimately this has to be uh, a struggle that uh, the Iraqi government and the Iraqi people uh, are determined to win for themselves. And we can provide support, but they're going to have to do it. Now, obviously, she did not answer the original question, which was, given the situation in Iraq, uh, are, are we better off or worse off with Saddam Hussein gone? She talked about making a mistake. Yes, she voted for the war, and that cost her dearly in 2008. It's probably why uh, Barack Obama was able to edge her out back in 2008. But she had an answer. She had an answer that was rehearsed, was practiced, was ready to go. She wasn't even asked about her vote, but she decided to make it about her vote. And she answered the question. Uh, you know, I don't understand when you're running for president of the United States why you don't have this stuff worked out in advance. Now, you could say you don't want a politician who, uh, you know, practices his responses, his or her responses. But, you know, it's about organizing. If you're going to run the United States of America, you need to at least demonstrate during a campaign that you know how to run a campaign, that you can predict questions that you're going to be asked on the campaign trail. But Jeb Bush uh, couldn't even do that much. Well, and also I would add one more thing really quick that not only do you have to be able to demonstrate that you can run something like a large nationwide campaign, but also as a candidate um, and, of course, as a president, as an elected official, the words that you say, the words that you choose to say and how you choose to say them can move stock markets. They can cause international incidents. So, yeah, I would say, you know, if you don't like politicians who practice their answers, then, you know, consider what happens when somebody makes a gap that causes an international incident. It is important to know what you're going to say. And, you know, and I would say, again, I don't even like what she said. I think it was kind of a lame answer. But she knew she was going to be asked, and she answered the question. That's, by the way, that's Desi Doyen, our producer here, my co-host on The Green News. She'll be joining us some more later. Uh, Jeb then has been since then trying to move beyond that uh, just disastrous implosion over the last week or two. And he was asked uh, another question about Iraq and whether leaving Iraq was a mistake. Uh, and uh, does uh, run this clip and, and be prepared. I want to start and stop a little bit because I, I, you know, apparently the media has done a terrible job of answering these questions over the past decade or more because it allows guys like Jeb Bush seemingly to be able to answer with this kind of nonsense. So here was uh, here was Jeb Bush uh, just this week. ISIS didn't exist uh, when my brother was president. That's right. ISIS did not exist when your brother was president. At least they didn't call themselves ISIS. They called themselves, uh, some of them called themselves Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Others of them were just the Sunnis that were thrown out of power by your brother. And instead of being kept on and taken care of and kept in the army, they were sent packing and they have been. This is the same insurgency that your brother was fighting for all of those years. The same insurgency that ended up killing, killing thousands of our U.S. troops. 
they didn't exist when my brother was brought. Okay, keep going. Al Qaeda uh, in Iraq was wiped out when my brother was president. No, no, they weren't wiped out when your brother was president. As a matter of fact, Al Qaeda in Iraq hardly even existed until your brother created the vacuum that allowed Al Qaeda in Iraq to exist in the first place. Keep going. There were mistakes made in Iraq for sure. Oh, mistakes made. But the surge created a, a fragile but stable Iraq that the president could have built on, and it would have not allowed ISIS or ISIL to suggest that somehow, you know, that that decision wasn't a uh, was was a good decision to pull back to mirror popular sentiment. Well, that's what the president did when he abandoned, when he left Iraq. Okay, when the president abandoned Iraq, as he says, what he was doing was honoring the agreement that George W. Bush had put in place before he left office to pull the troops out. As a matter of fact, Barack Obama at the time didn't want to honor that. He wanted to he wanted to change the agreement. He wanted to keep the troops there. But Maliki at the time would not allow him. Well, he would allow him. He said, OK, you can keep the troops there, but we're not going to give them uh, uh, dispensation from our laws as had been the case. So uh, when they kill somebody, they can be brought up on murder charges. It was George W. Bush's agreement that Barack Obama ended up reluctantly following. I'm glad he did follow it. I was angry at him at the time that he was trying to keep uh, troops there for longer. But again, these are just facts, facts that apparently the American public uh, is not familiar with. Joe Wilson, the former ambassador to Iraq, the last guy uh, to see uh, Saddam Hussein, I, I th last American, I think, to... Uh, uh, to see him before the first Gulf War, that Joe Wilson, the guy who called George W. Bush out for lying about yellow cake uranium from Niger in Iraq uh, during the State of the Union speech when George Bush was making the case for war, when George Bush was lying about the war, when George Bush was pretending the intelligence was faulty, even though he knew it wasn't. Here's what Joe Wilson had to say in response to uh, to Jeb Bush. I think this is uh, on, on Wednesday, uh, Joe Wilson speaking on, I think, the Chris Hayes show. He ignores, if you want to go back to 2009, the fact that it was George Bush who negotiated the withdrawal of American troops, which I think was a good thing to do at that time. And it was Prime Minister Maliki who decided that he would go ahead and honor that agreement that the United States would leave in 2011. But what is Jeb Bush going to do? What are the Republicans going to do? Which Arabs are they going to kill this time? Uh, after having overthrown a Sunni regime in Baghdad and essentially allied themselves now with the Shia uh, militias uh, supported by Iran, are they going to go out and kill more Sunnis and uh, thinking that that's going to help us? Yeah, well, they don't have a plan. Republicans aren't even willing to uh, debate what we should do now about ISIS. They're just passing the uh, National Defense Authorization Act, and they're not even willing to have a debate about how we should proceed in ISIS, in, in Iraq against ISIS, which means Obama is going it alone in violation of the Constitution because Congress won't do their job and debate this issue. So that was Joe Wilson, who was married to... Um, What's her name? Valerie Plame. Thank you. Valerie Plame. I got so worked up. Valerie Plame, who was outed, who was a covert CIA agent, outed by Jeb's brother, the George Bush administration, whose identity was revealed who's co as a covert operative in the CIA. I just, 
I can't believe we're still debating this, but the fact is we are and we must. We must discuss it because the media never did, because there was never any accountability, because no one was ever sent to jail for these goddamn lies that got us into this endless war that we are still fighting today. Let's take a quick break and come back with more broadcast and maybe the state senator. Uh, I'm hoping the state senator from Nebraska. I know he's a Republican, but uh, hopefully he'll be able to calm me down. Brad Friedman, this is your broadcast. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to the broadcast. In uh, earlier this year, in February, I reported on some seemingly very good news out of the state of Nebraska, with. Uh, really, Republicans across the country in the wake of the Supreme Court gutting a key part of the Voting Rights Act, uh, Republicans have been putting in voting restrictions on uh, polling place photo ID restrictions and other types of laws all around the country. That's why it was kind of interesting and unusual and, frankly, good news back in February when the uh, Nebraska State Senate had rejected polling place photo ID restrictions at the polls, uh, 11 Republicans joined all 14 Democrats in that unicameral body. And I'll explain what that means in a moment uh, to turn back photo ID restrictions, which critics appropriately say, in my opinion, will keep uh, hundreds of thousands of legally registered voters from being able to cast their vote. In fact, in uh, in Nebraska, it was about 120,000 Nebraskans uh, who might have not been able to vote if this uh, if this measure had passed. Uh, in 2012 in Nebraska, photo ID restriction was defeated by a filibuster. Uh, at the time, AP reported that critics had blasted the proposal as an attempt to keep poor, elderly, disabled, and college-age voters from casting a ballot. And then the measure came up again this year. And uh, as one of the uh, legislators said in the, uh, in the uh, state Senate in Nebraska, that they actually found about halfway through this year's filibuster that they had a majority of folks that wanted to kill the bill. And in fact, they were able to. Now, uh, credit was given uh, to the unicameral n uh, nature of the Nebraska state Senate. That is, they have only one chamber, only the Senate, no House. And that uh, Senate is not organized by party. In theory, though each of the senators, for the most part, have their own party affiliations, the, the, the body itself is a nonpartisan body. It is They don't caucus by party. They caucus by geographic location. And, in fact, uh, one of the senators at the time here, uh, 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 Moorfield, I'm, I'm missing, uh, here we go, Adam Moorfield, had said, that it's much less partisan in our body and people are able to be more independent. People aren't punished for not following the party lines on certain issues because our leadership is nonpartisan. That was in February, and that was really the exception to a lot of uh, rules around the country where you had uh, Republican-led states. And uh, make no mistake, there are far more Republicans in the state Senate in Nebraska than Democrats, but it seems like they were able to get along. Move the clock forward now. To this week, as a matter of fact, on Wednesday, according to USA Today, uh, Nebraska lawmakers passed a bill Wednesday to abolish the death penalty by a big enough margin to override a threatened veto by Republican Governor Pete Ricketts. The measure passed 32 to 15 in the state's unicameral legislature. It would replace the death penalty with a sentence of life in prison. 
If lawmakers override the expected veto, uh, Nebraska would become the first conservative state to repeal the death penalty since North Dakota in 1973. The repeal vote was bolstered by conservatives who oppose the death penalty for religious reasons and say it is a waste of taxpayer money, the uh, Lincoln Journal-Star reports. The repeal comes just a week after the Republican governor announced the state had purchased a massive quantity of lethal drugs, which he said was part of his promise to, quote, resolve issues with the functionality of the death penalty in his state, although the drugs that he purchased for some $50,000, I believe it was, come from a questionable source, to say the least, to discuss all of this. I'm happy to be joined by Nebraska State Senator Al Davis of the 43rd District. He has served in that unicameral uh, legislature for uh, since 2012. He uh, identifies, I believe, as a Republican, although, I, as, I, as I know, they uh, are nonpartisan the way they caucus in that uh in that body, and I think that very well may have made the difference in this case, but let's find out from him. Senator Al Davis, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Thank you, sir. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Uh, glad to have you. Okay, the um, I know you became uh, concerned about the death penalty itself uh, after, a I think it was a 2006 double homicide, uh, a false confession, planted DNA evidence. Uh, I, I, how, how did you become interested in this, uh, in this case in the first place? And then we'll talk about what happened, uh, yesterday in the Senate. You know, I've always been, uh, I've always done a lot of reading about crime cases. And so the murders in, uh, Murdoch, Nebraska, which one of the ones you're referring to, mm-hmm. it was a horrific, uh, horrific murder case of a man and woman were killed in their bedroom upstairs. Their nephew was brought in and, um, uh, you know, he. Will, I don't think he asked for uh, legal counsel, and he was uh, under a lot of pressure. And, and over a several-hour period, finally, you know, I think they were trying to tell him, you know, if you don't confess to this, you're going to get the death penalty. And he confessed, and then he indicted a, a friend, and that particular person wilted under pressure also. So both of them confessed, and it's just so hard to believe that that happens, but it does. And as the case moved along, um, there was no... Uh, Evidence that the car, one of the the cars that the boys had, were studied, and there were, they found no evidence in them. So, somewhat later, as the case was a little bit falling apart, um, suddenly this blood drop turned up in the car, which tied them to that scene. Huh. And as the and then as the case wore on, there was a, a ring that was found in the house, and the ring was a very unusual, uh, very very unusual piece. It was a custom made ring, and I can't remember what was on the insignia, but but an inspector or an investigator found a jeweler's mark in it. She contacted the jeweler who happened to be closing his business at the time. He said, yeah, I remember making that ring, and he tracked it to the owner, and the owner's pickup had been stolen two days before that, and so it was a completely different set of circumstances. But two things that to me are uh, very scary are false confessions and then planted evidence. And there are a number of other things that I think can contribute to people being on death row that shouldn't be there, Um, snitches who turn them in and bad public defenders. So uh, from my perspective, life in prison is a far better solution because, uh, you know, it's reversible. And the death penalty is not reversible. And, and in that case, they ended up finding the real, uh, the real killers in that, in that Murdoch case, correct? And it was they not did. the ones. Now, were, was the, uh, uh, the, the, the fellow who had uh, given the false confession and that they planted the evidence, 
what was he originally convicted of uh, with the death penalty? So the the person that planted the false evidence, are you talking about the the the, the original per- person yeah, the, who was arrested? The no, false. he was not. He was not given the death penalty. Mm-hmm. Um, but later on, after after they did an investigation of the of the criminologist who had planted the evidence, uh, I think the, the prosecuting attorney in that particular county said, uh, you know, he said it had it not been for that ring, those two men probably would be on death row today. Hmm. So how did so that's how you became interested in and concerned about the issue of the death penalty. How did we get to the point where a predominantly Republican state with almost all Republican elected officials at the state level, uh, predominantly Republican state Senate? I think it's uh, 35 to 14 is the uh, Republicans to Democrats there. How did you get to the point where even they want to ban the death penalty, which has otherwise long been favored by Republicans across the country and with a veto-proof majority in direct contradiction with your Republican governor? I think, I, I honestly don't think of it as a, a Republican-Democrat issue. I think it's more of a, a philosophical, personal choice or, or personal opinion as to how you feel about it, whether you're pro-life or not. That's I think that contributed to some of the people who voted that way. When the bill was heard in front of the Judiciary Committee, which is made up of eight uh, eight members, uh, it came out of judiciary unanimously. I think there was only one person who came and testified for retaining the death penalty, and uh, and our senator uh, Ernie Chambers, who who is just a remarkable uh, man. He's mm-hmm. 78 years old, 77 years old now, and has had basically 40 years in legislature. And he has brought this bill every two years for that 40 years. So mm-hmm. he's a incredibly intelligent man. Really talks about the moral issues of it, and I think it really comes down to. Uh, a lot of people say, why are we doing this? We haven't executed anybody since 1997. At the, at the time the bill came up, we didn't have a way to do so. We couldn't get the drugs. Now the governor has has procured the drugs, but you know, those, by, by getting the drugs in the way he did, he will open up another avenue of appeal for the people on death row, some of whom have been there since the mid-'80s. I think, I think the body just decided, you know, this doesn't work anymore. Let's, let's just take it off the table. You mentioned, um, well, actually, I want to I want to ask you about those those drugs that uh, the governor was able to obtain in a minute. But but you mentioned that uh, you mentioned pro-life. And I've always wondered about this. And, and I must admit, I'm, uh, I'm well, I'm not a Democrat. I'm certainly uh, consider myself very progressive. And I've never understood the Republican thinking where they consider themselves pro-life when it comes to issues like abortion but when it comes to the death penalty, it seems like they can't wait to, 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 to invoke that death penalty. Are you saying that that conflict somehow in Nebraska uh, rang true for Republicans who didn't want to be pro-life on abortion and yet call for the death penalty? I'm just trying to figure out how this could apply elsewhere around the country to, to move people on this issue, Senator. You know, the Nebraska, I, I'm going to speculate and say it's about 30 percent Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. So the church, you know, was active in saying this is a life issue. I think that certainly carried some weight with some people. I know, I know, my the person that sits next to me on the floor, that was the, his contention. It's, he said this is a life issue, and so I'm going to vote my personal beliefs, which is that we shouldn't be taking someone's life. Um, now, I don't think that imp- imp- impacted everyone. You know, it, it, that wasn't that wasn't why I made that choice. Mm-hmm. Particularly, I was more concerned about you know state killing people who might not be guilty um then there's some 
some people who feel it's a, a fiscal nightmare. You know, you've got a lot of legal fees that go into it. Uh, in our rural counties, Nebraska's a very rural state. In our rural counties, the resources really aren't available to try a death penalty case. So, uh, you know, I think some of the people in the rural parts of the state recognize that uh, that would never happen where they were, but it might happen in another place, and that sort of seems unequitable to have resources available to try a death penalty case in one county and not in the other. We had a, we had some murders, and one of the guys that's on death row now uh, was responsible for this legislation, but it, it was a cult murder down in rural Nebraska in the mid-'80s. They, they took this case, and, and this, is, this man is still appealing, but uh, his death penalty case practically broke the county. And so the legislature then passed the bill to sort of reallocate revenue, but still in all, you know, the public defenders are costly, and you've got to have a lot of investigators, and it's very expensive to try a death penalty case. And I understand that was also uh, played a key role here, not just the appeal to uh, uh, religious conservatives, but to fiscal conservatives who look at the death penalty. I think you've had... uh, Eight, I'm sorry, 11 inmates on death row now for years uh, and facing appeals and, and challenges, even while you didn't have the, the drugs to kill them. Uh, how, how much did just the, the fiscal argument uh, seem to move, move the needle out there a little bit? You know, it was discussed. Um, I didn't hear much of that discussion on the floor when we debated the bill. The mm-hmm. last, you know, we've done that. We voted on that bill many times because it always took a cloture vote to to move to the next stage, and we have to have three readings of the bill. So we've heard heard the bill base or heard of the debate six times, uh, eight hours on the first round, four the second, two the third. So you know we've put a lot of time and effort into it, but I don't think I heard much about the fiscal part of it. I think it was more uh, issues of, uh, well, the fact that we haven't used it, we don't use it. Why not just? eliminate it. I think that was the driving force for a lot of people. Well, that's a good question. And yet your governor, uh, Pete Ricketts, uh, proudly announced that uh, he obtained drugs, uh, 1,000 units of sodium thiopental and bancuronium bromide, um, which have been very difficult to come by. A lot of states are facing problems because they're out of uh, these drugs that they use. Uh, to execute prisoners. He found a thousand units, which I think is enough to kill a thousand people, uh, as I understand it, paid $54,400 from a, uh, uh, something, a, 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 a distributor in India called Harris Pharma, from whom uh, the state had previously obtained drugs and found that there was a problem, that the manufacturer of the drugs said, no, no, these are not licensed for use in the U.S. They're only for... Uh, uh, for use in testing in Africa in some fashion. They were, quote, wrongfully deser- diverted to Nebraska's execution chamber. And now the governor has gone back to seemingly that same source to buy uh, to, to, to buy these new drugs. Do you have any idea what he might have been thinking, uh, State Senator Al Davis? And um, are you confident that uh, your fellow Democrats and Republicans will be able to override any veto that might come from the Republican governor? Um, Well, I'd like to address the latter question first. Sure. Um, We had a uh, a young woman who was in the police force in Omaha uh, shot and killed yesterday, ironically enough. And uh, so I have a few fears that 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 shooting of a police officer who was well-loved and respected could produce panic among some people who are thinking I'm making the wrong mistake. And, and, and then I would say until really the last week and a half, 
even from my legislative district, the majority of the mail that's come in was in favor of repealing the death penalty. Now that's reversing now as the news is getting out there. Um, so I have I have some really significant concerns that you know we might not be able to prevail on the on the veto. Uh, so as to the drugs, you, I, actually let me let me just interrupt on that. So you're saying that. Uh, the prevailing winds were to abolish the death penalty, but since it's gotten so much publicity now, you're beginning to hear from people trying to push you the other way, and, and you think some, some of the folks may reverse their position after a veto? I, I, think, I think some might. Um, you know, we, we had more than enough. It takes 30 votes to override the governor's veto. We had 32. Um, so, you know, I, I'm fairly hopeful that people will will stay the course because you know you voted on it so many times already it it seems to me that uh to turn back now would be a poor choice if for a candidate i mean people are still mm-hmm. going to blame you for advancing the bill to this stage anyway um so you're not wa- you're not wobbling on this one are you senator i'm not okay no, good no. uh and about those yeah about the 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 questionable drug purchase by the governor I'm not sure if the governor. I, I'm guessing that the governor started looking into doing that as soon as he thought the, that there might be subtraction to the death penalty bill. Um, I don't know enough about the case to really comment about it very much, except to me buying the the drugs from the same people that they were purchased from the last time around, which uh, opened up a lot of legal problems for the state. Just didn't seem like a very. Um, it's not a move I would have made. I don't think. And, and it was announced just a week ago that he procured the drugs. You know, now I don't think they're even in the possession of the state of Nebraska yet. Um, well, I do. The, the one other thing that I think is important to say is, you know, this is this is for people moving forward. This does not. The people that are on death row are still there. What, would they st- would they be put to death even with the uh, even if the governor's veto is overridden here? I would. You know, they're still on death row. I don't right. know what would happen. I, I can't say what would happen. So the language of the bill itself does not convert their death no. uh, death row cases into life without parole cases. No. Okay. Uh, how much do you, uh, and, and and I certainly hope that it holds uh, for many of the reasons that you mentioned uh, and that uh, everyone hangs tough there and uh, does the right moral thing here, in my opinion, by ending the death penalty once and for all. But how much do you credit the... Uh, nonpartisan unicameral nature of Nebraska's uh, state Senate with being able to come to something like this, even in a quote unquote red state, come come to something like this. And as I had mentioned uh, in the introduction, uh, the photo ID restriction that was knocked down. Uh, how, how much of that is because of the unique nature of your legislature out there in Nebraska, do you feel? Oh, I think a huge portion of it. Um, you know, our system is quite different we don't have party whips we the speaker really has very little power um everybody can introduce any bill you want to and every bill has a hearing and and, and so they're you know the the alliances are fluid i mean you're working with one person one time and another person the next time now we all know who's who we, everybody knows who the democrats are and everybody knows who the republicans are but as you know a good portion of the time there's a group of republicans that vote with the with the democrats mm-hmm. And, you know, I might be voting with some of the most liberal Democrats on one bill, and on the next bill I might be voting with the most conservative Republicans because, 
you know, really we're looking out for what we think is in the best interest of the district that we represent. Do, do you? Cons- but I don't think I don't think that you know with, without a whip without a whip system to keep people in line and without the discipline of the party uh, telling you what you can and can't do, it, it's a much better system. And you, you're not even seated that way, right? As opposed to so many houses where you got the Republicans on uh, the right, the Democrats on the left. You guys are just seated, everybody amongst each other, correct? Right. Do you consider yourself a, a, a conservative? I think I'm a conservative. Um, I'm a, certainly a fiscal conservative. I'm probably maybe a little more of a libertarian in terms of my uh, social beliefs, but I'm a fiscal conservative. Um, I, 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 think, I think most of the people up there are. They're, they're conservative, but, you know, we, we look at each, each issue separately. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about the voter ID issue for a minute. Sure. You know, uh, our, our Secretary of State, who's a Republican, and he's a great man, but he had sent a letter to the government committee, and he said, you know, this isn't a problem in Nebraska. So for a state to, who, who doesn't have a voter ID or a fraud problem, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we were going to have a fiscal note to do all, all the, the identification cards and things. So, you know, there's a fiscal conservative decision to uh, not advance the bill. It's not a problem, and we're not going to waste the money. And you voted that, against that as well. I, I didn't check your record on that one. I did, yes. That and, bill has come up before, uh-huh. too. And again, just seems like common sense. Uh, if you don't have, uh, you know, f- fraud that would be deterred by these measures, uh, don't spend a whole lot of money to to prevent it and risk, uh, you know, legal voters being turned away. Uh, State Senator uh, Al Davis, we got just a minute or so left. Uh, when you, uh, well, when you look around at Every other state in the in the union and certainly at the federal level, at the partisans based squabbling that's going on in most states. You know, for example, we, we've seen the Republican Party object to their own policies, whether it's, uh, you know, Obamacare, the Affordable Care Act, which was originally a Republican proposal back in the 90s or cap and trade on climate change. Uh, that they then decided to oppose once Democrats supported it. When you see that sort of thing, what do you guys up there in Nebraska think about this dysfunction? Um, are you envious or delighted to uh, to not be a part of that? You know, I'm delighted to not be a part of that. And I will say about the federal quandary, I, I'm just disgusted with the fact that they can't work together to solve the problems of the country, which are pretty significant. We've got a lot of issues that need to be looked at. And, you know, it's basically just waiting for the next round of elections. Yep. That doesn't solve problems. It doesn't. Are, are there any other surprises in store uh, that will be coming out of Nebraska that, that may uh, shock the rest of the country the way uh, these uh, the death penalty decision and the photo ID decision uh, have seemed to rock the nation? Well, l- let me talk about a, a couple of things. One of them is a minor issue probably, but we the governor vetoed the gas tax here in Nebraska, which came up a week ago, and the body overrode the governor on that. Um, again, I did it because I thought it was the, the smart thing to do. We need to keep our roads up, and we haven't got the revenue that we used to have. But probably the bill that is more unusual that you might be most surprised about is driver's licenses for the children of the, of the dreamers. Mm-hmm. So Nebraska was the only state our last governor refused to give them driver's licenses, and the bill was introduced this year to do that in the legislature, and the current governor doesn't like the, the bill either, but um, that bill has continued to gain a momentum, and we put it. It, was, it passed final reading today. The last time it was up, I believe there were 39 people or 40 voting for that bill. 
so we are giving our illegal alien, th- th- those children that mm-hmm. came here with their parents, driver's licenses. Now, the reason that's unusual, if people want to talk about Nebraska being a conservative state, but we had the business community firmly behind that. The Chambers of Commerce, the Nebraska Cattlemen, a great many social organizations. So it was a very united group of people that supported that position because, you know, the argument again here is people have been in our schools. We've educated them. Now, if we're not going to let them drive in our state, they're going to take their education and go somewhere else and work and pay taxes in another state. We need the revenue and we need we need the employees because the unemployment rate in Nebraska is you know, about 2%. It's just an unbelievably low rate right now. Wow. Increased gas taxes, uh, driver's license for uh, for dreamers. If you were in any other state at this point, uh, Senator, they would call you just a, uh, a leftist commie for daring to even think about those sorts of things. Uh, I want to uh, uh, thank you, State Senator Al Davis. I want to thank you uh, and, frankly, the Nebraska State Senate for being a reasonable common sense oasis in an otherwise dysfunctional legislative American landscape. Uh, Really appreciate it. And uh, great to talk to you uh, today. Nebraska State Senator Al Davis from the 43rd District of the great state of Nebraska. Thank you very much for your time today, sir. And thank you. You bet. What? Me running late? Yeah, as usual. Quick break. And we're back with Desi Doyen and the Green News Report and more. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. so sad. It's so sad. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Dave Letterman finishing up 33 years of broadcasting this week. Very, very sad about that. Very sad to see him go. Although I should say it was a joyous final episode. Didn't you think, Desi? Yeah, I really enjoyed watching it. It was, you know, his usual, he was up to his usual hijinks. Been very sweet. Well, yeah. And you know what? I noticed, uh, I think he ended way happier than he started because i have been watching it this guy for year decades i guess at this point grew up with him and you know and he was always sort of a cranky curmudgeon but boy last night i mean he was just beaming at his son harry uh you know but you think back to the late night wars remember oh, that yeah. remember and the, all the, the late shift book you, did you ever read that book? I, I did not read the book uh but you know i knew about it i heard about it and he did make some references to that he made a lot of funny references. well yeah to he it. said uh looks like he's not going to get the tonight show after all uh <laughs> it was great uh but although it very very sad uh and of course i'm thinking in my mind well that's two down one to go we've lost we lost stephen colbert this year we lost david letterman soon we're going to lose the big kahuna for those of us in politics anyway john stewart although steve colbert will be back that's as, true. Uh, on on the uh, letterman show. but who knows what it'll be it will it be the late show with steve colbert because that's his real name or is he going to uh keep his faux right-wing character i don't know anyway uh, thanks, Dave. You are a world-class broadcaster, and uh, you set the standard for uh, for a whole bunch of people. So uh, he will be missed. But he's still alive, so there's that. All right, Desi Doyne, are you ready for some green news? Oh, you bet. All right, let's bring it. Our latest green news report. The beach was just covered in thick, black crude. The, the rocks were covered. The waves that were coming in were just black oil. Major oil spill off the coast of Santa Barbara. Another settlement reached in the 2010 BP oil spill. Fossil fuels subsidized to the tune of $5 trillion a year. Plus... It will impact how our military defends our country. And so we need to act. 
and we need to act now. President Obama tells Coast Guard cadets climate change is a threat to national security. Well, of course he does. All of that and more straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. The overwhelming amount of science was against Galileo. No, Congressman Louis Gohmert, Republican from Texas. The church was against Galileo. The science was always on his side. Man, 400 years later and you religious right-wing deniers are still getting it wrong. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, it wasn't the 1969 oil spill off Santa Barbara, California coast, which was the worst the country had ever seen at the time, but it was still pretty bad on the beaches of Santa Barbara over the past day or two. Yep, that was an oil pipeline that ruptured on Tuesday, gushing an estimated 105,000 gallons of crude oil onto the beautiful coastline of California near Santa Barbara. That's about 100 miles north of Los Angeles. All of a sudden, we smelled this terrible smell like gasoline. And we went out to the beach, and we and it was an oil spill. Wow. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Yeah, that ruptured pipeline owned by Houston-based Plains All-American Pipeline created an oil slick nine miles long and deposited a thick layer of crude oil on popular Refugio State Beach, where the campgrounds had been booked solid for Memorial Day but were evacuated and closed. Santa Barbara County Fire Chief Dan Zaniboni said quick action by the campers prevented a worse spill. They were the ones that actually discovered the uh, thick oil spill in, in the ocean. They were able to direct people into that area and, and ultimately get that pipeline shut down in a much faster way. They probably, you know, by doing that, they saved miles of coastline. This new oil spill is in the same location where that massive oil spill hit in Santa Barbara in 1969. Four million gallons. That killed thousands of birds and galvanized the environmental movement. It also led to a moratorium on all new drilling off of California's coast, but existing platforms were grandfathered in. And those wells were the source of the new oil spill. Crude oil, the gift that keeps on giving. Meanwhile, some accountability in another oil spill. Five years after the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, plaintiffs who suffered damages have reached a legal settlement with TransOcean, the owner of the doomed Deepwater Horizon drilling rig. If approved by the court, TransOcean will pay nearly $212 million to settle all claims with Gulf Coast individuals and business owners. Now, it doesn't sound like much, but the judge overseeing the claims litigation ruled that BP bears the lion's share of responsibility. So this is just what TransOcean has to cough up. They were the owners of the actual rig. Right. BP is going to actually end up paying a whole lot more. Billions and billions more. That's good. A shocking new analysis from the International Monetary Fund concludes that the fossil fuel industry receives the equivalent of $5 trillion in subsidies every year. That's $5 trillion around the world when you account for the external costs of fossil fuels, from cleaning up environmental damage like oil spills to billions of dollars in health care costs caused by toxic pollution. These are external costs that are not paid for by the fossil fuel industry, but instead are borne by the public. That's $10 million dollars every single minute, says the IMF, and that's greater than the total health spending of all the world's governments. Well, Republicans are going to be against this because they don't like taxpayers paying for, uh, never mind. 
Finally, climate change is a serious threat to global and national security. That's what President Barack Obama told the Coast Guard's graduating class of cadets in Connecticut this week. Taking a jab at climate science deniers, Obama said to deny climate change is a dereliction of duty. If you see storm clouds gathering or dangerous shoals ahead, you don't sit back and do nothing. You take action to protect your ship. Anything less is negligence. It is a dereliction of duty, and so too with climate change. Denying it or refusing to deal with it endangers our national security. It's interesting. It has been the military that has really taken the lead on a lot of issues concerning climate change. They seem to understand the risk. They know it's a security threat, even if the people in government who claim to support our troops don't seem to get it. For much more on all of those stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, please check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download the Green News Report anytime via iTunes, Stitcher, or TuneIn. Find us and follow us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Boom. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen, our producer. Thanks, as ever, to Cynthia Cohn, our booking goddess, and, of course, to my guest today, Nebraska State Senator Al Davis. Until we meet again, you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog, and, of course, at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Hey.